All right, we are in the last third of the beginning and the end series. We'll have four more sermons on Revelation. And I want to do kind of a quick recap of where we've been so far. This started all the way back in Genesis 1 and 2, where we are created in God's image. We are created to flourish. God gives us this mandate to be fruitful and multiply. He repeats that mandate to Noah to be fruitful and multiply. Sin, of course, enters the picture, but God's mission for flourishing has not changed Revelation itself, we've talked about, is apocalyptic, meaning it's full of symbolism. It's also prophetic. It's not predicting the future, but it's a call to faithfulness, a call to who God is and his truth. But it's also a letter, a letter meaning the original audience would have understood what it meant. These symbols are maybe a little distant for us, so it's a little hard for us to understand, but they would have gotten it. Revelation is a critique of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire sees itself as the center of the universe. And next week, Pastor Brent is going to talk about Babylon or Rome itself and the critique of that. We find that it's not the Roman Empire. It's not the Caesar at the center of the universe, but the throne itself of Jesus. And God is on that throne. And this would have been an incredible encouragement to the Christians who were being persecuted in that day. There's also a lamb. John hears Lion of Judah, but he turns and looks and he sees the lamb, the lamb that was slain. Victory comes through the lamb's sacrifice. Pastor Brenda has been talking about the dragon, this symbol of evil, of Satan, the woman being Israel, the woman's child being Jesus. The dragon has been defeated, so the dragon is attacking the children's, the child's children, meaning the church. Last week, she talked about the two beasts, one being the Roman Empire and the second being sort of this propaganda machine getting people to worship the first beast. All right, there's a lot there. All of the sermons are online if you missed one and how to read Revelation especially is important um, as we continue to dig into this book. Now, remember, these are tough passages and it's apocalyptic. So we're not looking through Revelation to see what's coming, right? We're not reading our news feed and go, oh, this must be, this is happening here. I got a meme in my Facebook feed this week that says, look outside, you know, at all the chaos in the world. What chapter of Revelation are we in today, right? These things have been happening the last 2,000 years. So there's some tough passages today. We're going to look at three judgments, the seals, the trumpets, and the bulls. But before we get to the first trumpet, there's this concept of the day that we're going to hear about, which eventually becomes known as the day of the Lord. Now, Revelation has more Old Testament references than any other New Testament book, over 400. So the original hearers would have understood these references. They would have known what John is talking about. So we want to go all the way back to the Exodus The judgments that we're going to hear about today are reflected in the Exodus. Remember, the Exodus was the story of God's people being oppressed in Egypt. They were slaves. And God calls Moses to confront the Pharaoh, to let them go to worship. There's the theme of worship throughout Revelation. And judgment comes when we're not allowed to worship. 
So that's what Pharaoh was requested. Give us time to go worship. And of course, he refuses. The plagues are meant to soften Pharaoh's heart, but his heart is hardened. He continues to resist. And we get this sort of um, idea that um, this day of the Lord begins to happen. And so Exodus 13, 3 says this. Then Moses said to the people, commemorate this day, the day you came out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, because the Lord brought you out of it with the mighty hand. Eat nothing containing yeast. So that day was the day of the Passover, where the angel of death was going to come across the land. And Moses told the people, put blood of the lamb on your doorpost so the angel of death passes by, passes over. And so this Passover is really a foundational event in the people of God and their freedom from oppression. They celebrated it annually, their freedom from bondage. It became known as the day of the Lord, one of the first day of the Lord, and we'll look at some others. One of the resources we've been giving and showing in our life groups are the Bible Project videos. And here's the quote from that video. The day of the Lord, the phrase used to describe how God is at work in history to confront collective human evil, to liberate his people from oppression, and assert his rule over all of creation. So Egypt becomes this archetype for the day of the Lord, for an empire oppressing God's people. The day of the Lord where God shows up and stops this oppression. Babylon is also that archetype. And so Brenda's going to talk about Babylon next week. And when John is talking about Babylon, he really means Rome. Okay. So there's two day of the Lord concepts that we'll see. One is kind of lowercase d, where God oppresses, God judges oppressive nations. And capital D is the final day of the Lord when evil will cease to exist. That day of the Lord we're going to talk about, I think, in three weeks it is, that final sort of judgment. In the meantime, these three sets of judgments, we see this day of the Lord in Isaiah 2. Isaiah says this, The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled. The arrogance of man will be brought low and human pride humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day, and the idols will totally disappear. See, when a nation gets so proud that it replaces the divine with itself, you know they have missed the plot line. This call for humility, this call for God is really the only one that is to be exalted. He is the one to be worshipped. Now, before um, in Babylon, we actually see the prophets in the Old Testament um, talking about Israel was destroyed. They have their own day of the Lord. They had stopped following God, and they experienced the day of the Lord. Babylon itself experiences the day of the Lord. They had conquered Israel. They had sent Israel into exile. But Persia is coming, right? And Persia is the means of which God brings the day of the Lord upon Babylon. All right. So you have in the Old Testament this concept of day of the Lord, this concept of God showing up in freeing people that have been oppressed, God showing up when 
God is not at the center, freeing people from the bondage that they have experienced. That's important for us to look at the lens of these judgments in Revelation. We'll start with Revelation 6, 12 to 17. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to the earth as fig drops from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? Don't see a lot of Christmas cards with these passages on it, right? (laughs) Remember, this is very symbolic language. God is not sort of talking about, in Revelation here, literal events. When we read Revelation 6, we're tempted to look at the calendar, to look at our news feed, to see when is this going to happen. But John is writing to these original hearers about what is happening right then in their midst. These judgments that are coming, that this people that is being oppressed, these early Christians who are experiencing persecution from the Roman Empire are wanting to get relief from that. The day of the Lord is something that has happened many times in the biblical narrative, and it's happening again in Rome while John is writing to them. So you can see this chart. It's a lot to take in. Um, But there's three different judgments that are talked about between Revelation 6 and 16. And Pastor Brenda talked about two chapters in the middle of these judgments with the beast and the dragon and, and all of that. But these judgments follow a similar pattern as the one in Exodus. And you can see these various things that are happening that are bringing freedom from the people that are being oppressed. These are not sort of consecutive events. It's not, okay, we did all the seal judgments, and now we're going to do the trumpet judgments, and next we're going to do the bulls judgment. Actually, I brought a prop for this. I forgot it at my desk, at my seat here. These judgments actually happen more like sort of a Russian nesting doll. They're contained within themselves. Now, this has more than three in them, but three judgments, all kind of happening at the same time. If these were literal judgments and consecutive judgments, the world would be wiped out multiple times again and again. So it's important to see that this is symbolic because, in fact, the world has not been wiped out again and again. Hopefully that makes sense. So don't think of them so much as literal events. As Scott McKnight says in his reading Revelation responsibly, that God will cast forth unto the world, but as rhetorical displays of warning for the dragon and comfort for the oppressed. It's a warning against evil and injustice, 
And this letter is written to the followers of Jesus to bring them hope, to bring them encouragement, to hang in there. And notice, you might think, oh, the judgments will help people turn back, right? But if we go back here, there is no repentance in these judgments. And we're going to talk about what actually helps the people to repent, to turn towards God later in Revelation. It's revealed what actually gets people to every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. It is not the judgments. So the day of the Lord here, there's an historical sense to the day of the Lord that every time an empire is judged, but there's also the ultimate day of the Lord, and we'll get to that one in three weeks in Revelation 19, when justice will completely arrive. We can look around our world right now and see that injustice still exists, oppression still exists, evil still exists. It's not as bad as it could be, but we know that it is still here. Now, when I ask the word, uh, when you think of justice, what comes to mind? What are words that come to mind when you hear the word justice? Punishment, okay? What else? Fairness? Mm -hmm. What else? Being set right? Mm -hmm. Anything else? What does justice look like? These are all good answers. And depending on where you look at in scripture, justice can take different forms. It can be punishment. It can be getting what they deserve. There can be retribution. There can be revenge. We can look in the Psalms and see these prayers. God, strike down my enemies, right? Even Jesus' disciples say, Lord, should we call down fire? And he's like, you have clearly missed the point, right? But we see this impulse for retribution, for revenge. We see dramatic tellings in Revelation 6 about what justice can look like. So it's important for us as we read a passage to, to step back a little bit and try to understand what does it mean in this place? What does it mean in Scripture? Can justice just be retribution or can it be restorative? Can there be a justice that brings healing and wholeness? and repair. Usually we want that type of justice, restorative justice, to bring healing and wholeness for ourselves, but we want retribution for our enemies. Who enjoys judging people? Or maybe you don't enjoy it, but you just do it. You just put up your hand. Okay, those that did not raise their hands, I mean, another jewel in your crown. I was speaking on judgment uh, sometime earlier this year, and as I was preparing for it, I'm like, okay, do not judge, do not judge, and I was doing really great. But then what I started doing is I was judging the judgers, right? I took my judging to the next level. They're so bad because they judge everybody, and I was like, ooh, okay, I, I clearly have growth yet to make happen here. But usually for ourselves, we want some restoration, but for the other, we want punishment, and it's important to know that we are not the judges. There's a reason why it is not us. We know we have mixed motivations and mixed emotions. And we know that God is the good shepherd. Chances are, you know, if you're having a bad day, the judgment comes more quickly. 
with small little slights. Maybe somebody bumps you in the MTR. For me, when I was on my bike and the bus cut me off, I'm not going to retell that story. I'd confessed it already. Uh, that was retribution I wanted and not restoration. Maybe it's the taxi driver doesn't take your preferred route and ends up getting stuck in traffic. Sometimes your emotional state will dictate your type of response. Small things are big things. Abuse, emotional abuse, verbal, spiritual oppression, being betrayed. Chances are we want retribution and not restoration. When we look back into the Exodus story, we find something quite interesting in Exodus 3. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them. See, God cares about justice. He cares about the oppressed. The plagues were a response to a prayer. God is not indifferent to evil. He has dealt with it in, on the cross, and he will deal with it in finality. And we'll see this as we continue to work through the book. Woven into the fabric of these judgments is hope. If you were a slave in Egypt... There is this hope in being set free. If you were an early Christian being persecuted, there is a hope that's coming when justice arrives. The passage talked about the Lamb's wrath. What does God's wrath look like? I appreciated John Stott's definition of this. God's wrath is an unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising, and steadfast antagonism towards evil in all its forms and manifestations. We need a God like that. God's wrath can also be very passive. Sin is often has its roots in its own self-destruction. N.T. Wright says it this way, first, God allows human wickedness to work itself out to reap its own destruction. Sin never leads to flourishing. Second, he steps in more directly to stop it, to call time on it when it gets out of hand. See, evil doesn't go unchecked in this world because of what Jesus did on the cross. It could be worse. Don't we want a God that's against evil, is for justice and against injustice? Don't we see creation groaning under the weight of the abuse of our planet? Isn't our news feeds filled with injustice around the globe? See, we're to see these judgments as God's desire to set the oppressed free. Like he did all the way back in Egypt, he is doing again and again. The oppressed want to hear from God. They want to experience justice. They want to see judgment on evil. They want to see oppression end and they want the injustices to be undone. They want to know there'll be an end of racism, that'll end inequality, that starvation will no longer be a reality. Instead, it'll be a feast around the table. 
that instead of exclusion, there'll be inclusion where everybody is invited. Justice is a response to the prayers of the oppressed. We see it in Revelation 6.10. They called out in a loud voice, this is the followers of Jesus, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? John frames these responses, these judgments, as responding to those being oppressed. The new Jerusalem is coming, new creation is coming, and their prayers will be answered. So justice, first, is an answer to prayer. Secondly, justice can be seen as a clearing space so that there's room for new heaven and a new earth. What in our world, what systems will have to go because of the injustice involved with them? What things will have to be thrown out, like this word Gehenna, that we see in scripture, sometimes translated as hell. It was the place outside the city where the trash was burned, where the fires didn't stop, this fire that burns up the waste. What things will need to be burned? Scott McKnight talks about these judgments as discipline, leading to transformation as you might discipline a child. You're wanting to not just see right behaviors, you're wanting to see transformation internally. How are they shaping us? And then restorative. Sometimes we'll think about judgment as just retribution, but actually it can be restorative. I was reminded of the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Tax collectors took more money than they were owed, but Zacchaeus is enthralled with the Jesus story, and he hears Jesus, and he repents. And what does his repentance mean? It's not just God, I'm sorry for what I've done. He actually has a turnaround. He changes the way he's going to live. He repays double what he has taken. That's restorative. It's the prodigal son coming back after wasting his father's wealth and the father embracing him, bringing him healing and bringing him wholeness. Friends, this is what justice looks like. See, when we dehumanize our enemies... Whatever the other is, when we dehumanize people, then we can justify anything we do to them. We see this throughout history, things like slavery, one country oppressing another one. We see this in wars, Russia and Ukraine. We see this in Israel and Palestine. The terror on one side leads to Terror on the other side, and innocent lives are lost. Watching Israel and Palestine, I was reminded of 9-11 in the U.S. That act of terrorism against the U.S. gave the U.S. a license to start wars on multiple fronts, to be at war for 20 years. And in the midst of that, so many innocents died. And what was really accomplished? Is that justice? See, remember, Revelation is written by a marginalized person to marginalized people, people on the fringe. And if I'm honest, that is really hard to relate to. I'm a white, male, cisgendered, college education. I've only lived in superpowers. 
I can't relate to persecution. I can't relate to that type of oppression. I have a lot of privilege. Sometimes I see these judgments written from places of privilege to, in fact, judge those on the margins, and you completely miss the plot line if that's how we're reading it. Instead, God is asking me, how do I steward that privilege? How do I steward the resources I have been given for the good in this world? How do I steward what God has given me for the flourishing of everybody? My faith has never really felt threatened. I've never really had any persecution for my faith. Some of you have. We have asylum seekers in our congregation that have fled countries where they have been persecuted. We have economic refugees. We have people coming from all different backgrounds that have been on the margins. That's part of why we do church as community. Each of us has our own story. And when we come into proximity with those that are other than us, we begin to learn from them. We begin to see everybody born in the image of God, created in that image. And we begin to expand our ability to have compassion. So it's not an us versus them. It's just us. See, there's woven into the fabric of these judgments incredible hope. If you were receiving this letter from John, you would have so much hope that the oppression was not going to last forever. Jesus says this to his followers in the Gospel of Luke. When these things begin to take place, and they were taking place from his ascension, and they'll be taking place until he returns, stand up. Lift your heads up because your redemption is drawing near. See, God is working redemption now. Not everything is redeemed yet, but we can be a part of both receiving that redemption and testifying to that redemption. We have this verse on our screen here, Revelation 21.5, Behold, I am making all things new. This is where we're ending up with new creation overlapping Heaven overlapping earth, things on earth as it is in heaven. We are getting there. He's not making all new things. He's making all things new. That means renewing all things. Evil, evil injustice, oppression will have an end. And Jesus will be the means of that redemption. He is the lamb. Not leading with power and might, but the slain lamb on the throne. How he achieved victory is what he invites us into and how we live our lives here. We self-examine ourselves. Do we dehumanize people? Do we have an us versus them where we've given ourselves permission to treat others in a way that is less than human? It's an invitation to walk justly, to walk with compassion, to steward our resources for the flourishing of this world. Friends, what we have in our news feeds today will not last forever. We can hold on to the hope as we believe in the hope giver to restore all things. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you have sent your son, 
that you have sent the one who can reconcile all things to yourself. God, there is so much in this world that is not as it should be, but that is not the last chapter in this story. We know your last chapter is filled with hope and restoration, God. God, I pray for those of us right now, uh, maybe who are going through an incredibly difficult time. May you speak directly into their hearts to hold more tightly to you. God, I pray for those of us who are doing quite well. May you give us eyes to see those that we can come alongside and bring your hope to. For those of us in positions of power and privilege, may we steward that power well, God, to your kingdom. To whatever systems we can speak into, God, may you give us wisdom to discern. In your name we pray, amen.